Right, here we go. Right, so Jack Airy, you are the research fellow at Policy Exchange, and you are responsible for the Building Beautiful documentation and all things housing related. Yeah, so that was first published back in June, was it June last year? Yeah, June 2018. And what was it that brought about brought that about? Like who initiated the project initially? Um uh, good question. Um it's and the way think tanks work is you, you think of an idea and you think of this something that's gonna be interesting, that's relevant to government policy. Um we we saw that uh, one one cause of NIMBYism is the way that things look, the way that new new developments look. We're interested in how do you how do you build two hundred thousand homes a year? Thinking, okay, well, the government um, it provides money for infrastructure, it sets legal obligations for affordable housing. These two things that people um, think about in terms of why they might object to a development in an area. And another one we thought is um, yeah is the design of stuff. Like a lot of people don't like what 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 new developments look like in their neighbourhood. So if we can ask the public, what, what, we, what, yeah, we, what we thought was we're going to ask the public, what do they want? What are they wanting developments? What kind of things would they support? Is that actually important for them at all? Maybe it isn't. Uh, we just thought, okay, let's do some research on this. Let's see how it can be relevant to government policy, what it could do. And we went from there. Um, there wasn't some grand plan with it. There never is with a kind of think tank report. Mm. Um, we just did some research over a few months. We did a poll of 5,013 people, I think, by a polling, com- polling company called Delta Poll. Uh, they also did four polling, uh, sorry, not polling, uh, four focus groups for us. One was with um, older people, one was with younger people, one was with architects, and one was with planners. So they were two-hour sessions, just talking about all things design and style. Why do the why do homes look the way they do? Uh, what kind of power do architects think they have to change things? What power do planners think they have to change things? Where do they think it all lies? How does the process happen? And then up with the, the ones with systems, well, sorry, members of the public, not architects and planners aren't, but <laughs> just generally asking about these things. Um, yeah, it was just good to explore further in detail. What would they like? What are the things that they like about their home? What would they want someone else's, or not, what, what would they want other homes in their neighbourhood to look like? You, you, by asking these kind of questions, you, you, dig down, you find, yeah, you just dig deeper on what people actually want and what they'd be willing to accept in their neighbourhood. Because the, the, while, while it's true, some people will just object to the fact of development in their area, most people are very reasonable um, when it comes to those questions, especially with the like the need for much greater house building, especially in London and the South East. People accept that, and whether they're the older people, even though most people think the older people are the biggest nimbies, they've got always, because... They see their grandchildren not being able to uh, afford a home or paying far too much for rent, and they accept that some things have got to change and that might change in their neighbourhood. So if you accept that premise, which we did, um, which I think quite a few people do, but some people don't, uh, we just thought, okay, well, let's explore that a bit deeper. Yeah, well, that it is an interesting premise because and one of, this is one of the things that I still haven't sort of settled on myself, is to what degree should the public have direct indirect or no control over what is built um and this sort of the mechanisms as they exist at the moment obviously go via the planning system but is there do you think a potential for a greater role for people to have direct involvement in deciding what is built in their local area or how it's designed or what it looks like i think anything that brings greater certainty to the planning process is a good thing to start with so if you can, I'm not sure how it would happen, but if you can get young people and old people, all parts of society, 
speaking to the local authority in somewhere or local authority planning department in somewhere or another about what they would like, what they would support, what they don't want, what they find ugly, what they find beautiful, that would be great. So from there you could write design code, you could write the, uh, the local plan, and I know these processes happen to an extent already. So in some places, in some local authority areas, uh, engagement with the public is actually very good. In some it's really quite bad. So uh, yes, I think the more the better. You don't want to go all the way, you don't want people to, uh, homeowners, I don't, I'm only speaking about homeowners here, they don't, own, they own the property rights to the red line around their home. Mm. They don't own the property rights to their whole village. They don't get to say, they don't own the property rights to the field that they have a nice view onto. That's not how it works. However, you've got to accept that their views matter. And they have important things to say about how their village or town or city might grow. And it's good to ask them this. And to the extent, it's worth asking what, in what way can the public get involved already? So I think most people, I mean, I've, I've, I've actually been to a few planning committees because of my role, but I do, I, do, I have to go and listen to them, and they're, they're tawdry and boring affairs, but they're very interesting. Because I think most people don't don't get engaged, but they, they just think, they rely on their local councillor to represent them, or whoever's on the planning committee. And if you listen, I mean, if you look at the makeup of local government um, planning committees, A, they look nothing like the population, they tend to be old people who, there's nothing wrong with that, but they have a lot of time on their hands and they are able to do these things. And the people that attend the planning committees uh, also tend to be a bit older too. They don't, so they don't tend to look like society. So we're getting a, a small part of society that are engaging in this to begin with. And I think people just rely, yeah, they rely on their local councillor to, to put their views and there's very little electoral gain for a councillor in supporting new housing. There's a lot to be won in opposing it. Mm. That is the, the biggest, uh, that's one of the things we uh, yeah, we wanted to look at in the report, really. Yeah. Um, do you think, have you sort of had some sort of a kind of a rude awakening to the world of the style wars as they used to be and the, the world of architecture versus politics and all this sort of thing since you've been involved in, in this topic? Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> very interesting. Um, we have been compared to our, our, the things we've said have been compared to Albert Speer, uh, Hitler's uh, advisor. Um, we have been just, yes, we've been talked about just uh, advancing agendas of old white men, which is a very odd thing if you look in our office. Uh, so, yes, it's kind of, uh, been full, uh, yeah, felt the full throttle of some parts of the architectural community. And kind of, I knew it existed, but I, kind of, I was kind of taken aback by the. Um, the reaction of some people to some of the stuff that we've said, and I think I, I mean we're great. We want, we did this to provoke a debate. We never that's what we want. We're a think tank. That's what we do. Um, but what we instead of provoking a debate, we wanted politicians to think like this. So think tanks mm. straddle policy and politics, and we it, it, there are some people that will talk about the quality of new housing development, the beauty of new housing development, but not enough. And we didn't think politicians talked about this enough. Well yeah well i think it's absolutely great that this is back on the agenda in terms of political discussion at least um although the the sort of the more cynical part of me thinks that is it sort of a uh, a distraction or, or an intent to make it look like something is being done rather than actually an intent to do something were i to be completely cynical about the sort of political intent behind it 
people are people are willing to but people I people disagree with the proposition that if you make housing more beautiful as a public thing to possibly do, um, they're more likely to say yes or no or just you might more like just bought new housing and development. But it's fine to disagree with that. And we're not uh, we and I suppose I'm not gonna speak on behalf of the government, but we as in politics have never said that this will entirely solve the housing crisis. I would be out of a job if we solved the housing <laughs> crisis. I have to find other ways to do it too. It's just one part of it. As, it's the same, as I said earlier, it's the, way, the same way we think about how can we in, um, uh, spend more money on infrastructure, providing new schools or new hospitals that make a development work and that make people support new development. Or, you know, setting, in London we have, a, I think it's 45% uh, target for affordable housing. Uh, so the same way we think about that, about making development acceptable, we thought design in the style is something else than that, and it was always focused towards that. And so, yeah, sorry, going back to your question, um, it's uh, it's definitely not. It's not a decoy to use the term <laughs> that Roger Scruton used. Um, it's about uh, it's about asking breaking down the why people are nimby's and government coming up with a solution to that. I don't know what that solution is yet. I mean, we'll get on to talk about that. I'm sure. Um, yeah. yeah, I'm. I mean, I'm increasingly. Uh, what skeptical about this idea that suddenly if you make all developments sort of beautiful or more attractive that suddenly millions more of them are going to sail through planning and our entire housing crisis will be solved but I think this is it's almost a false premise that the the kind of the whole thing is founded upon and it's for me I think that the the solutions to lie in other places um, but do you think that there is any truth in the idea that suddenly planning applications would increase if, if buildings are made more attractive? Planning applications, in, um, I think if we had greater certainty of what, was, what the public like, or what the local public like, and if developers can respond to that, or the public sector can respond to that, then yes, I think the planning process becomes less adversarial and easier. I don't know if people that submit more planning applications. Um, I guess I, it depends how much land government allows forward for development, or local authorities allow forward to come forward for development. Um, but I, I, I think the point of it being less adversarial is really important because so much money is wasted on the planning system. It's like the planning system, it's like this false industry where like you, uh, one uh, local authority will pay a consultant to write its local plan, and it takes so many years. So there are some local authorities that don't have it like, Six percent of local authorities, local planning authorities, don't have in place a local plan, and they've had so long to do it. And it, it, it shows how difficult it is to to do these things. But it, the whole industry is not working. And so, if we can spend if we can spend less money on consultants advising local authorities on local plans and development um, developers spending less on consultants uh, trying to navigate the planning system, telling them how they can navigate the planning system by just having greater certainty on it through asking people what they find beautiful, then yes, I do think it become easier. I don't know if we'll get more planning applications. There are bomb, there are other uh, other factors at play for that in terms of do we release some land around here or around the green belt or anything like that. That would attract more planning applications. Mm. Well, this is what I mean. Like, the vast majority of planning applications go through in the, the normal times, whatever, eight to 12 weeks or whatever it is. And so the, 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 the idea that they're going to suddenly speed up is probably not going to happen. But like you say, whether or not more will go in is probably unlikely and and i'm i'm obviously as a, an architect myself i'm all for buildings being more attractive whatever that means um but i think there there is this sort of this 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 false idea of linking beauty and attractiveness as one perfectly legitimate agenda to housing numbers which is another perfectly legitimate agenda 
And I think that there's people, especially politicians, and perhaps especially the housing minister, thinks that there's more of a link there than maybe there is. I, I don't know how big the link is. I do think there's a link there. Um, and mainly because to solve, to solve the housing crisis, whatever that might be, we do need to release more land for development where there is most, where people most want to live, where the pe most people most want to live, where there's housing demand highest. It tends to be in London and the South East. There's just big donuts of land around London which we're not allowed to build on. And that's normally for very good reasons, but there's a lot of land there that is kind of, I think I call it, call it like non-green green belt. Um, except like convincing people that we should build on that land is very difficult. But convincing people to, that we should build on the edge of their village, the edge of their town is very difficult. If we're going to win that argument, I say we, the local authority or the government, we should be doing this. Um, Yes, as I said, one part, infrastructure, affordable housing, and it's going to look quite good. It's going to add to the value of your area. And I think the NIMBYs get a bad rap, but their, the heart of their argument is actually true. It's like they, they don't want to have, they don't want their property price to, their, sorry, the value of their property to be impacted by new development. And if, all, if most new development where, uh, is impacting that, or is, if it's uh, taking away from the value, the aesthetic value of their place, then I think it's fine, to, of course, it's reasonable to object to that new development. Mm. So, if we can, again, drill down into why people are NIMBYs, then this is, it's a good way of, yeah, creating a better system which builds more homes and people more accepting to let the land on the edge of their city be built on. Yeah, a lot of out of London, so, I'm just, uh, focusing on London here, but a lot of Amsterdam in London is quite ugly. If we can build, like, uh, if we can make the argument that actually we, we're going to release that very ugly field that's environmentally very poor, can't be used for, or for farming or for a golf course or for, or for ponies, actually that's not a very good use of that land. And the people in London, you know, the 20-year-olds, 30-year-olds who really need a home would actually quite like to live in a home on that uh, plot of land. And, you know, we're actually going to release that land and we're going to build on it in a beautiful way that you like, that adds jobs to the area, that adds, um, you know, vibrancy to the area, um, hospitals, schools, and it just makes it a nicer place. And that flips the argument somewhat. And it, it's, I, I suppose, that's the that's our agenda, policy exchange's agenda in this regard, is how do we make the how do we make housing development more popular or at least less opposed. Mm. Yeah, I think uh, you're right to sort of mention nim NIMBYs generally. I think NIMBYs do get a bad rap in that I'd say it's perfectly legitimate for somebody to, although it, although it is hypocritical, I think it's perfectly legitimate for someone to say, move into a brand new build house on the outskirts of a town and then oppose the next phase of the development that's going to be built next to their house. Like Obviously, it's hypocritical, but I don't think we should necessarily blame people for sort of looking out for their own interests effectively. Um, although it, it is kind of a selfish attitude, but again, I don't think we should blame people for having that. Um, but again, I'd, I'd sort of draw a distinction between the, the urban planning and placemaking, I suppose, aspects of this, of having good schools in places and having vibrant town centres and all, all these sorts of things, and the aesthetics of the actual buildings that are constructed. Um, and the sort of the link between those th these are issues that are very easily or very often confused and tangled up together um and i, I 
with the sort of the polling that you did as well. And I think I, I mentioned this in the piece that I wrote for your your latest document. That it's very difficult to untangle the different factors at play and the different variables. Um, so how do you think we can move forward to try and untangle some of those things to find out how much of develop, good development that people like is about placemaking and that kind of thing and urban planning related things and how much of it is actually about aesthetics? My guess is aesthetics is one part of this and I, in our original document I, I think this is the point that we tried to make as well um, just say like we we, 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 we in the argument we're making we're never trying to say you know um, there's only one for one style of architecture that is good one style of architecture is bad it's not just ask we never felt like the people were actually asked what they like we did that and we found some results um, and it shows those quite a bit like people have a varied view of what they want and it, I, I, in terms of drilling down in exactly what people want I think that's actually best answered by an architect like, like yourself like you do in your essay um, but yes it's just our starting proposition was if you walk around a lot of new housing estates, new developments across the country, um, you, you don't get the sense that these are going to be viewed, the housing minister's phrase, the conservation ahead of the future. Like, again, I am not an architect, I have no way trained that, that way, but I, I can walk around and tell they're not very well designed. You know, you have homes that don't, like, that you walk along the road and the home, you see like a, a, big, um, a big wall rather than front of someone's house you don't get streets you they just you can feel that everything's kind of just plotted ran, like randomly to to maximize the homes that have been built there rather than to create a place um aesthetics is one part of that and again like you walk around you look at the homes and they're kind of faux georgian faux victorian designed by numbers kind of homes and uh, they they don't uh, fill you with a sense of joy and maybe in 30 years they will i don't know mm. You, so you, that's the starting proposition. You walk around the place and you think this is not adding to the value of the wider area yet. Um, okay, what can we do about that? What? Who's the blame? Whose fault is that? Maybe it's no one's fault, but maybe there are certain things that government can do through the planning system, through what it spends in subsidies, through things like help to buy. I mean, you've seen the, the persimmon news earlier in the week. Um, government are threatening to withhold help to buy from homes built by persimmon because of the quality of what is built and the, the, kind of the working culture in the organisation. So there are lots of things governments can do and local authorities can do and then also the architects and planners and um, developers can do to raise the standards of um, new building in this country. And I think more generally, I say architects, but we what I say, obviously saying as, as if we're all powerful, we, we went into this uh, agenda or into this debate with the intention we want more architects involved in house building. Something like only 8% of new build homes go through an architect's studio. And I mean, that's never going to get to 100%, nor would it need to, but it's, it's quite a depressingly low figure, in my opinion. Mm. So, how do we get architects more, how do we get more architects working in volume house building? Because it's not, there's just, it's not the most inspiring of new, new build, at the, new development at the moment. And, um, well, there, there are, as I'm sure you know, there are some very enlightened developers who sort of see the value of, of good architectural engagement and, and hire the, sort of the good, the best architects to, to engage and do that. But I think that this is one area where sort of the, the architectural establishment and the profession can definitely agree with, with yourselves and with, with politicians, maybe to some extent, that 
the role of the architect has shifted over how many decades it's been. Um, and the, the architects are increasingly talking about being marginalized and ha having a lesser and lesser role and being just one of many consultants and being sort of sub being uh, contracted out and being being under the thumb of the developer in design and build contracts. And I think that's where potentially there's a, a political intervention that could make a massive difference. I, I, for example, in um, after the Grenfell thing, I attended one event at the RBA. And there was a, a guy there, a, it was a lawyer, I can't remember his name, but he was saying that the banks would not lend to any developer who was doing anything other than a design and build contract, that you had to have a design and build contract, and that that will always inevitably lead to lower quality, effectively. Um, and going back sort of further, going back more than 100 years, it used to be that the architect was effectively the master builder. There was no such thing as the main contractor. The main contractor didn't exist, and you had the architect was effectively the project manager uh, and look, was responsible ultimately for the entire building and its delivery. Um, and if if there is an inter some interventions to be made politically, then I think the most effective level they can be made at is in terms of reorganizing the sort of the power hierarchy, if you like. Um, back towards the architect and obviously I would say that because I'm an architect um, but perhaps there isn't quite as much of an understanding amongst developers and lenders and politicians as to how much of a difference it makes when you've got an architect who's ultimately responsible for the entire project rather than just a consultant along with all the others yeah and let architects be architects and let planners be planners like this is we need to make these, these um, industries far more relevant to house building today mm. well the trouble is that of course there's there's good architects and bad architects and there have been throughout history and it will almost certainly be the case that within your big developer who builds your shoddy houses that they will have a qualified architect mm -hmm. who does delivers the, the buildings and draws up the buildings but maybe isn't very good at their job mm -hmm. um, so exactly how you sort of work out the mechanisms around that might be quite difficult well, I think this is this is where the sort of the design guides and and I suppose the planning system as well does come in. Uh, these are all issues the commission has been sorry the building beautiful building sorry building better building beautiful commission. Even you've forgotten the name now. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's why it's been set up it's to ask these questions like how how can government change this? What can we do for lenders? What can builders do? Do developers want to change? Are they actually quite open to this idea? And what how can we consumers? How can consumer behaviour change? How will it change in the next few years? As house prices aren't going to rise as quickly in the next few decades, and they're quite unlikely to, then how do buying attitudes or renting attitudes change? Maybe people actually will care more about what it looks like or what it's like inside, how it's been designed. Because um, I think it's, uh, uh, this is a generalisation, I think it's fair to say most first-time buyers in this country, they they have, so much, they have so much pressure to get onto the, or they want to get onto the housing ladder so much that they don't have that much choice to be able to choose between the, the house, their dream house, the one that they want, that they'd like their home to look like, and what's on offer. Um, I think Ben Derbyshire, President of Breedler, in his essay for our collection, our recent collection, describes it as like a Hobson's choice. It's so. I think how do we have more variety in the housing sector, more modern, modernist housing, more contemporary housing, more Victorian, like genuine Victorian style housing, or brutalist housing, whatever you like, whatever the people want, we should build. It, what we have at the moment is just 
a lack of choice. And if the Commission can find ways for this, this uh, the way that the industry works at the moment, uh, which is almost entirely driven by profit, um, to change, then, or in the, sorry, in the private sector, um, then that would be a good thing. Mm. Well, in terms of sort of non-profit oriented building then, local authorities, Local Authority House Building dropped off in the 1980s um, for obviously a number of reasons. And I mean, you just have to look at the graph to see that the shortfall effectively is yeah. lies there, if anywhere. Um, how can particularly a conservative government um, bring about more local authority house building in a way that will be politically palatable uh, and sort of workable and sustainable in the long term, do you think? I think it's worth saying that some of the best new homes are now built by local, so recently built homes are built by local authorities or commissioned by local authorities. So those are schemes in Hackney and Islington at the moment. They look amazing. And you think, okay, if they're doing, if the, if the public sector are doing it that well, or commissioning that well, then why is, the, why is what we build in the private sector of a lower standard or lower beauty? Um, in terms of how to um, get more local authorities to build homes, um, yes, everyone agrees that it's, almost everyone agrees that it's a good idea. Um, yeah, as you said, they used to build around 100,000 homes a year, or between 50 and 100,000 homes a year. And um, to be honest, a lot of what is built, uh, what was built after the war, it needs to be replaced. It needs to, like, it's, it wasn't meant to last longer than 30 years. There were lo about 3,000 estates around London that were built after the war, which are either, like, they, they almost need to, it's very politically difficult to say this, but they need to be knocked down and rebuilt in much better, so much better quality and much better design in ways that people like. But the problem is that people live there and it's their home, and you mm. can't just knock down someone's home. It's a very difficult issue. Um, so, there's, uh, so I think we should temper this argument about more local authority building by the quality of what's gone before. Uh, the need to focus on regenerating that stock, particularly because a lot of it is in very high value locations. Um, we should absolutely be looking at how we can um, rebuild that housing in a way that you know um, houses the people that are there and more people. We can provide more social housing. And there are a lot of schemes across London that already do this. Um, it's just the politics are utterly poor. And we actually have an essay on this by Zach Goldsmith in our um, essay collection, um, who obviously failed in his London mayoral uh, election in 2016. And I, I, it's an issue. I don't think it's an issue that's gone away. Now. It's not really talked about too much, but back to local authorities. So at the moment, local authorities build about one to 2,000 homes a year in, in England. Um, and um, it, yes, we want that to go up. Uh, the, but the idea of it going up to 10,000 or even 50,000 in the next few years is like, it's not going to happen. Mainly because um, the way that local authorities finance new homes, new council homes, is through the ha their housing revenue accounts. To have a housing revenue account, you need to own, a local authority needs to own stock. Uh, over the past two or three decades, around two thirds of all local authorities have transferred their stock to housing associations. Therefore, most of the two thirds of local authorities don't have any housing stock to borrow against. So, well, so they're only allowed to use their existing housing stock as the financial base for building more housing? Um, that's the main way of funding new uh, council homes, yes. Okay. So, therefore, so we start, uh, we're starting at that position. So most local authorities don't have the access to finance at the moment. But there are, there are ways around that, and government could do stuff around that. Um, but they're not at the moment. But um, there used to be a cap on how much local authorities can borrow. 
uh, since 2011, I think, somewhere like that, around, so around about then. Uh, and the local government association lobbied very unsuccessfully to, to remove that cap. And uh, I think it was about late last year it was removed. Now, any local authority with housing stock can borrow what they want to build new homes. And there's other grant funding that goes into building house homes from the government, and then there's other ways of funding it. So uh, in Haringey, they've got a one billion pound program on to um, fund new council housing. And now there isn't much detail on this funding. Bizarrely, it said it's only going to build 400 homes, which is terrible value. <laughs> uh, but well, so, for a billion pounds. Yeah, I, 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 <laughs> again, there's a huge lack of detail. Right. I think it was just part of the fund, but it's still around 400 million for 400 homes, which is again terrible yeah. value. But this goes on to my next point. Um, to be a house builder, you need a lot of skills, uh, a lot of experience, uh, and yeah, and a lot of expertise. So, if if local authorities haven't built homes uh, at the scale they we are envisaging, say ten or fifty thousand a year, for the past three decades, why on earth do we think they're going to be able to do it all of a sudden in the next few years? Yeah, it, it's very difficult to build a home. They, they need to be able to buy land. They need to kind of you know manage costs to commission good architects, um, you know, and then be able to manage that stuff. And they don't have all of those skills, so it takes time. And there's only so many people with those skills in this country. There aren't enough of them. There aren't, mm. enough, like, there aren't enough construction workers either. So the idea that councils are going to build our way out of the housing crisis in 10 or even 20 years is, um, is like, it's not going to happen. Yeah. Even if I would like, I, I think it'd be great if it happened, but it won't. Um, so we've got to start from that position. I think if if the numbers increase to two thousand, sorry, to three thousand, if they increase by a thousand every year, then hopefully more than that, then great. But it's a long term thing, and it was completely wrong, I think, of the government to to kind of place that um, block on new councils building. But it's going to take a long time mm. for that. Um, so that's all work again. Mm. Well, obviously now we don't have the same. But I think I think you're absolutely right to say that councils aren't able to do it anymore they've lost the knack effectively because they're not used to it and also we've we used to have loads of local authority architects departments um the best one of the best of which was hampshire county council architects where i'm from who did um had a, a chief called colin colin stansfield smith i think did some wonderful schools in particular one of which i actually went to really really well designed buildings um but they're they're sort of one of the few that's remaining there aren't there are almost no architects departments within councils left anymore um and that i guess that's part of losing the knack the ability to commission like you say commission buildings commission architects to do all the necessary things um so given that's the case do you think we have to sort of accept that and go for a kind of different model that works more with the private sector as it now is with private practices of architects private developers or private builders and and redesign the model so councils don't have to do all the work again themselves but they can collaborate effectively and do it to the same degree but through a different model and with more involvement of the private sector yeah i think lots of local like, there are lots of local authorities have faced massive budget cuts since 2010 i think their budgets have been reduced by like 40 percent on average so they've had they've been forced to innovate and think about things differently and a few, a few um, councils have set up local housing companies which operate outside of the normal council so they're not bound by the regulations the government sets them and in that regard they have been partnering with the private sector they've also local authorities own a hell of a lot of land often in very useful locations 
often it's completely useless for housing and you wouldn't want to put housing on it because often it's roads or you know parks or anything like that you don't like housing should never go on but they have a lot of brownfield land that could or sorry redundant land that could have housing on it so they've been looking at these assets that they have and are thinking far more imaginatively about it but in terms of different models yeah i, I hope they emerge but they are they are emerging already um but again local authority no, i mean they have so many budgetary pressures the idea that they're suddenly become major house builders in this country i mean if you ask someone who works at barrett or persimmon or bogus or taylor wimsey who build you know tens of thousands of homes or, or not but 10 or 15 thousand homes a year whether a local authority could do that when they're facing all of those other issues then they would probably laugh at the idea it's not that they wouldn't want to do it so we've got to look at other ways of building homes so housing associations have um are good at doing this. A lot of them haven't built recently in the future, but lots of them are looking to do it. They have access to quite a lot of money and uh, a lot of goodwill from the public as well, because um, it's a non-profit. Um, and then there's also something that we at Policy Exchange are looking at at the moment, is the idea of what businesses can do in terms of intervening in the housing market on behalf of their employees. So you think back to um, something like Port Sunlight or Thornhill. Um, these are or um, what's the one in Bradford, Saltair, uh, not in Bradford, but when um, these kind of Methodist uh, owners of factories have seen that their workers are living in horrible conditions, horrible slum housing, and they've intervened on behalf and they've built these homes, and really good quality homes. And if you go to these places, aren't they look amazing. Uh, obviously, we don't have people living in slums, but there is a case, and some companies are already uh, building um, like yeah, building homes or commissioning the building of homes for their employees. Um, often they'll intervene in the housing market in different ways by providing, say, a rental bond, like a deposit, or um, kind of somehow you know subsidising their travel or something like that, so they mm. can live closer to their homes. But basically, there's now a business case for staff recruitment and staff retention for businesses to, we think, to directly commission new homes um, for their staff. Uh, and in terms of renting for their staff. And so we're, something we're looking at is how would this work across the country and across different industries. So Deloitte, for instance, have bought some homes in the Olympic Village where they rent out to kind of graduates or have just moved to London to work at Deloitte. And now these are temporary propositions. Like they, they're not going to live there for longer than a year, I don't think. I don't know. But we're looking at how can that work on a bigger scale in the way that we have um, key worker housing for NHS staff, police staff, um, uh, other public sector workers can we have a private sector version of that that gives them the private sector has like uh, a lot of companies have a lot of land maybe they maybe homes could go on that mm -hmm. but we don't really think about it that way anymore and um uh, we, we're not saying like that dyson should start building homes we're not saying uh, that deloitte should build any homes or that a farmer should build homes but can they work with private sector developers or housing associations who do know how to um contracts get the building of homes to do that. Yeah, well, sure. The, the sort of immediate counter argument to that 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 comes to mind is surely if the, these companies just paid them living wages to match local living costs, then they wouldn't need to have the interventionist approach of providing them with housing directly because they could have enough money to have the choice to live locally wherever they wanted. Wouldn't that be a better way to give people the choice and enable them to live locally? Rather than just paying them better, a decent wage, rather than uh, providing them it, with houses. It would, but um, 
where we see this being important is where there's a lack of supply in the housing market. Right. Um, so whether that is in the centre in the centre of London, or it might be in a rural community where there just isn't enough homes or there's not high quality homes. And somewhere going back to like somewhere like Dyson, they have their campus in Wiltshire, I think. And okay, they want to. I know they're moving to Singapore. Forget that for the moment. If they want to expand that campus. How do they know the local housing market is going to be able to um, house their extra mm. staff who probably want high, high quality housing because I imagine they're quite well paid? Um, and it, what can what could James Dyson do to build homes for people on that campus? So it, it's not this is not going to be a solution to the housing crisis. It's just having a bit of additionality where some people think councils are going to build. Uh, but why do, we, why do we try and get more people building and seeing how what land, how land can be used differently and whether people. Mm. Yeah, well, it's, it's definitely an interesting model. I mean, you mentioned farmers. Obviously, it's been pretty typical for farmers to build rural housing, and there's obviously there's specific planning provisions for yeah. farm workers or land workers or anything. Um, but it's interesting thinking about this sort of worker-based model because it goes back to almost the industrial revolution, doesn't it? Where you've got a a large employer in a town, or even a large employer that effectively creates the town by setting up there and then building all the houses and bringing the people in. But it's it's isn't that almost quite quite optimistic given how many towns there are where the employers now left and you've got all these people who live in these houses through no fault of their own now don't have employers to work for in their towns so it, wouldn't it be better to try and effectively repopulate the places that have been um, abandoned by businesses with new businesses um, rather than creating new sort of campuses in London and the South East? Um, sure, but I mean, I would always go back to the, like, the fact that people want to live in certain places and that's unlikely to change for 50 or 100 years. And so lots of people want to live in London and in the towns around the South East. Um, that is where our housing supply problems tend to be in terms of where we need more supply. We, like, there are not, we have housing supply problems in places like Liverpool and Sunderland, but it's not about increasing adding the number of homes, it's about improving the quality of those existing homes. So um, I take your point, and I think, yes, that is a good thing to aim for, and I think governments, that's why they've introduced an industrial strategy to think about those things, but that doesn't uh, stop us thinking about how businesses can, you know, businesses in, high, in areas of high housing demand can intervene on behalf of their staff. And, you know, the most famous example of this is Tim Downing Street and the Levin Downing Street. You know, if, we, if the Prime Minister gets a, a key, a kind of a home, which I don't live by their employer, and the Chancellor too, then why can't I? But, I mean, I don't really want to do it. probably too small to do it. But, you know, but you, you might have... <laughs> yeah. Well, it's interesting, well, you mentioned size. Like, this would obviously be a, a large business thing, really, wouldn't it? And the, do we have... Has the sort of the employment market changed too much now? We don't have these or that many of these great big employers anymore that it is all more broken up and there's more people working independently or working as freelancers or as consultants or whatever it is uh even that even if they're working on in sort of technical or manual jobs they often don't work for large employers so does that model work now given that the change in the employment market well there's no reason why companies can't work together on this and commission together um again this is something that we're looking at and we're going to be researching for so I will tell you in a few minutes. <laughs> right. Yeah, we're just we're looking at the different models by which this might work. I, we, we don't know. Maybe people don't want to live in homes provided by their employer. This is something that we're going to ask people. Try some self-public forums. Yeah.
Well, it's, uh, the, the other immediate um, analogy that comes to mind is I've, I had quite a few friends who were in the RAF and they uh, get um, supplied with housing on bases, of course, um, most of which was reasonable quality from what I've heard, although not necessarily always the case. And they were sort of, that was just sort of accepted as standard. But I get you, it's sort of different because you've got the security implications and all that kind of thing and you're inside of a fence a lot of the time. Um, but no, it's an interesting sort of psychological thing in terms of would people feel too overly connected to their employer if their employer was providing their housing? Is it almost like being, I don't know, being in a boarding school where you're living and working in the same place? Or... Maybe. But I mean, we don't see it as a solution for all kinds of, every part of society. We, I, I think at my starting point is it's probably for young people who are moving to London or to Liverpool or to Manchester for a job, their first, probably their first job, and they have no idea what they're doing. They don't know where they're, where they're going to live. And I remember when I, well, I, I went to university in London, but even 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 after living here for three years and coming back to work here, I was kind of like a bit terrified by where on earth am I going to live? I'm not really sure. And my, again, my brother's just moved here, and he's had quite a difficulty finding somewhere. And if 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 the if your employer can actually help in that process, then I think that's a good thing. Mm. Yeah, it's definitely interesting. Uh, again, the other thing that's sort of more of a new model is the idea of cooperative housing. Mm. And and I mean, you talk about sort of young people and young professionals. It's, again, this is sort of the sort of London-centric view of the world coming out. Um, but could, there are more models of, of co-living spaces, effectively, um, being constructed with different financial models. Can a work-based, almost live-work model, fall into that where you have a, a co-working co-living space provided by an employer um even if it's maybe even just one apartment block mm. it could work well for some people I, you know, there was a report earlier in the week by the social market foundation which talked about co-living and i think yeah there is a segment of the population which would be willing and wanting to live in somewhere like that but i think that's quite a small mm. part so but again like we have key worker housing um provides nhs staff police staff um a home where they wouldn't otherwise not be able to work and if they didn't have that home they'd have to commute two hours or i don't know like far too long to get that to get to their job and they can't do their job properly they're not living their life to their fullest they're, it's impacting their well-being can we translate that into the, the private sector a private sector which is increasingly um kind of accused of the kind of crony capitalism and stuff like that they're looking for ways to um to help their workers beyond just talking about corporate social responsibility whatever that is mm. and this is something that we think might be quite good i have no idea it might not work it might be a <laughs> terrible idea but it's worth exploring and again it's, it goes back to your earlier question about local authorities like if if local authorities can add say ten thousand extra per year to this um to how many we build per year how many homes we are built per year Okay, businesses can have 10,000 of that, and they're slowly getting to the target of 300,000 homes per year. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's. Uh, you've written a lot about localism as well, I think, because you, you used to work for Localist, didn't you? Yes. The think tank. Like, that's. It's interesting to me about how there's these sort of conversations coming up about more local engagement in planning terms and in architecture. Um, but does that apply on a more general political level as well? Is there moving more to the sort of political side of things, is there greater potential greater role for local involvement or local government in a more general sense? People being more engaged in local government? In well, yeah, I mean, or, or greater devolution from national government to local authority, to local government? Uh, yes, absolutely, on some things. Uh, I think the tide of 
that's how the world describes it. But the, the movement of powers in the past years has been to city regions, and I think that's a good thing because it's a good geography to plan uh, your economy and your uh, housing market and stuff like that and transport. Um, if you just gave, so if, if the government decided actually we're going to de devolve powers around transport, housing, planning to say Barnet, Camp Barnet Borough Council uh, instead of the Greater London Authority, then I don't think that you wouldn't get the same, it wouldn't work as well. You wouldn't have London, this kind of cohesive unit. I wouldn't be able to get from one, one end of London to the other for about three quid or whatever it is. Um, so, yes, in answer to your question, we should be devolving more power down to people, uh, but it's important to get it to the right scale. So we've also gone to Greater Manchester, like more powers have gone to Greater Manchester, West Midlands, um, Bristol, City Regions, whatever that might be. They're, I mean, they're very clunky names, and people mm. don't immediately identify with these areas. But these are the right units at which to plan uh, and for government to devolve powers to. Also, government's got to have rightly trust that when you give people power and responsibility and extra funding, that there's going to be one leader who's going to be responsible for it, and they're going to be of a high quality. If you do that to 326 local authorities, there will definitely be some bad eggs in there. <laughs> so if we can do it to six or seven um, sort of regional mayors, then I think that's a good thing. I think there's mm. far more mayors. Well, you mentioned um, the sort of the fact that most people want to live in the London and the southeast, and I've sort of I've long sort of believed that one of the main problems we have in this country is we only have one mega city. Effectively, there's no competitor to London. Like almost unlike almost any other developed nation, we have just one great big city and no competitors to that. Not not two or three or four, and that so long as that is the case, London will always be sucking more and more and more of the life out of the rest of the country is a horrible way to put it but and that you need in order to address that the only way to address that is to have a proper competitor to london effectively and so things having things like hs2 and and that are just going to effectively suck more like more into london rather than taking more out of london do we need to do much more in terms of developing the other cities and city regions to be a genuine competitor to London? You don't make the other cities better by making London worse. That's my starting point. Um, and, I mean, yes, it would be good if there were other cities that were bigger. There's a, there's a, I think it's the Zipf law, where there's this idea, there's this idea that in every country you kind of you have a massive city and it reduces by two and it reduces by two. And there's like, there's like, it, it, but well, it's a Pareto distribution, isn't it? Where you've got the eighty percent of the people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, we don't follow that in this country, and it's quite odd. And uh, but I mean, that is the and it, well, yes, it's, it would be nice if that was the case, and that's why these mayors were created. These regional mayors like Andy Street, Andy Burnham. Uh, I can't remember the names, so I don't want to have a public profile. But um, and you could in the national media, you, uh, you kind of you can see that they have these places suddenly have a voice. And you know, Andy Byrne uh, is always going on about know, homelessness or why the government's failing on this thing or the other thing, and that's a good thing. The government might not like it, but some some you've got someone speaking for your area. I think that's a really important thing, and why I think more places should be able to have these these mayors. And the government has really strict um, uh, principles on the kind of people, like the kind of arrangements by which they devolve power. And as I said, that's important, but it also means you can't devolve power to uh, a lot of rural areas. Mm. And, yeah well it's it's an interesting sort of change from having having a sort of single figurehead rather than just the head of the council mm -hmm. 
because um, I think you're right, it does sort of increase accountability because you know that there's one figurehead who's sort of leading the, the um, strategy of, of the, just the area or the city. Do you think, I mean, in places like New York and America and, and other other sort of cities around the world, mayors have much, much more power to, like, in terms of laws and they can have different, not quite a federal structure, but almost. Do you think there's that would be a good thing or would that be too dangerous to do in this country? Um, I think their biggest... No, I, I, I would like to see us moving in that direction. So in London, 5% of taxes raised go locally and 95%, sorry, just generally go back to the, the exchequer, like back to central government. In New York, I think it's around half and half. Or, and again, in Paris, it's a bit of a demand. I'm not sure about Paris, but in other places, we should be moving towards that kind of situation, I think. Um, and also having letting people have a, more of a say about how their money's spent. There's lots of interesting ideas on, from councils controlled politically on the left and on the right around giving citizens more of a say over how money is spent. So maybe we could have a, ref, a, I don't know, a referendum in London on spending more on architecture. You know, more you talk about local authority architecture um, departments. Why don't maybe maybe people in London care about it so much that they'd be willing to spend two pounds extra per month to fund this department that you know advises. We never have. We don't even have that conversation in, in the UK. Whereas in um, so in uh, Los Angeles, uh, they have a massive homeless problem, uh, and some, sorry, yeah, Los Angeles, and um, they had a referendum on increasing the sales tax by half a percent to fund um, homelessness services in the city. The referendum was supported by lots of people by, and by businesses as well, and it, it passed with a stunking majority. Uh, and they have raised the taxes, and there will be more, more, more services provided to homeless people as a result. Yet we don't even think about that kind of thing in this country. Um, so any 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 um, any way that we move towards that kind of system, I think is good. Uh, I see why people are nervous about it, and it's also very like a lot of politicians were saying opposition. I think it's all more power for people, give power more people more power, and then they get into government there. So they think, mm-hmm. I don't quite like having this power. I don't want to give it to you, Andy Burnham. Chris Graydon, who uh, as transport secretary was um, blocked the devolution of powers on the over- London Overground Line in South London to Steve Khan, even though it was recommended by the former Chancellor George Osborne. So, it's it, how on earth we get to that point where we have more federalised structure, well, I suppose that's a different thing for cities, but with cities having more powers and, and rural areas have not having more power, it would be a long, we're reversing a long tide of centralisation in this country. Uh, yeah. So it's going to take a long time to push it back. Would people really stand for having regular local referendums on things? Like, no. Judging by recent history, I think people are most generally pretty sick of having, being asked stuff. Isn't, isn't that too close to direct democracy? Well, I think the best way of doing it, I mean, to be honest, maybe local referendum isn't the best thing. Maybe we actually elect our councillors, or we, when we elect our county councillor, Maybe we're not we're not electing council councillors, we're actually voting for we're kind of we're voting for their their program. We know what, say, um, the leader of Essex County Council is going to do. What are they offering? What are the Conservative or the Essex or the Labour grouping on British Council offering? And they, you know, like we have a manifesto for central government, um, and it's a big event in a general election. Well, sure, that, that's what we do already, isn't it? It is, but I'm just it is it is, but we have more radical ideas in them. It becomes more interesting, and right. you know, so uh, people play like. Um, uh, policy would vary much more by place, and maybe people would like that. I don't know, but I, mm. I, I, I can't have the idea of it. And it would, um, yeah, I, you have. So, 
a good example is in uh, Greater Manchester, there's big homelessness problem. If Andy Dylan says in his next mayor election, I'm going to raise the council tax preset to the mayoral council tax preset by you know, 10p to or a pound or whatever to fund homelessness services in across um, the city region uh, and that's a good way of doing it, doesn't need to go out spend money. Mm. And, um, but he probably wouldn't say that because he'd be, I, I don't know, maybe he would spend money. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, it's sounds like we're sort of delving deep into local authority reform and local government reform, which is yeah. a fairly large political agenda, I suppose. Yeah, and probably one they don't want to touch on the barge pole because it's so controversial. Yeah, well, I can't imagine. Well, what was that rant from, um, was it Yes, Prime Minister, where uh, Sir Humphrey was ranting about local government not have, having too much power and what happens if the the uh, the wrong people or the right people don't have the power, the wrong people get it, and you end up with local government. Uh, I don't know. I know it's an it's an interesting idea. It's certainly more sort of, I suppose, more democratic. But then, like we we are experiencing now the problem with direct democracy or greater direct democracy. Um, so is there is the sort of the counter argument is like we already have elected representatives. We already elect people and councillors and MPs to make those decisions on our behalf. Like they should be doing a better job of representing their constituents. Really, shouldn't they? If that system was functioning properly, then we wouldn't need that much more local involvement. I'd say the system as it is currently set up with power centralised in Westminster and Whitehall, um, we never have a system that's responsive enough to places' individual needs or people's individual needs. Um, that's why it's important to give people as much power in their lives to live their life as they want to, give them as much opportunity as possible, and also why it's important to give local authorities and well, you know, kind of places as much power as possible to, you know, to um, choose how they want, whether how open or closed they want to be to globalisation and things like that, if they want to do things differently. So a good example is in the Tees Valley, the mayor, his name I can't remember, he wants to, oh, he wants to have special regulatory framework for the court, um, basically to operate outside whatever customs union or other we end up in after the Brexit negotiations. He wants to have special status in the Tees Valley because it's a deprived area um, and he wants to attract as many businesses as possible. And apparently the Treasury is interested in this idea that we can have you know, a tailored regulatory framework and that, that opens up loads of ideas. So, I mean, I was brought up um, near, or my mum used to live near um, Claps in, in Essex and, you know, it's quite unlikely at the moment that biz a business is going to rush to go and locate in Essex, in Clapton, sorry, but maybe there's stuff that governments can do around tailoring some kind of regulatory framework towards to attract businesses there. Like maybe they don't want to do that. Maybe and I don't know. It's it's worth to think. It's just worth thinking about things in, in this way. Um, maybe they wouldn't. Maybe they don't pay attention to regulatory framework. They just want to locate in London because that's where people live and that's you know where they're going to get the staff who want to work there. Um, maybe they just want to locate there because that it also because it's London. It's this global city. But it's worth asking the question. Mm. Yeah. It's. Definitely, I mean, we're sort of delving into so large social changes on these sort of po policies, aren't we? But going back to the sort of the housing problems and the, the sort of the regionality of those problems, um, I think it was Sky News did a very good analysis late last year about the the sort of different aspects in different countries, yeah. different parts of the country. But is there more of a emphasis that needs to be had on almost relocating people? Uh, obviously, not in a forced way, but incentivizing people to move two places where there are uh, uh, an abundance of houses um, rather than or, or from places where there are shortages so i.e. 
mostly from London and the southeast to the rest of the country, effectively. But is that would that be more productive and a better solution rather than just ranking up production in one area and ignoring it in another area? I think on the on the, on the housing on, on that Sky News piece, but yeah, I, I was particularly spanned. Um, I've always thought when we talk about now, national housing crisis, it doesn't make sense because it varies so much. There's so many different local housing markets in the UK and in England and London. Like, there's so many different housing markets in London, let alone in the rest of the country. To talk about the housing crisis in national terms would be wrong because everyone experiences the housing market differently. And um, like housing, the housing crisis for me would be different to the housing crisis to you as it would be for my mum. Like it's, it's um, so to talk about it in regional terms and to understand, as we said earlier, like actually, well, again, we discussed it, but the idea that we need more homes in London and around the southeast, and we need to improve the stock in some places, or improve the rental offer in some places, or improve the design and style of some of these places because they're pig ugly. Some towns that have just been kind of you know ruined by 1960s pattern architects i'm exaggerating but um so it really is varied and it's yeah it, it might yeah a lack of affordable housing is yeah it's it's so varied that to say we have a national housing crisis again that's what politics in this work is trying to get towards and again at low as well i work there uh, that's what we're trying to be pushed towards that you know you need there are very, very many different solutions to this it's not just about hitting 300,000 new homes a year it's about building nice homes uh, that people want to live in places where they are needed. So, on your question, uh, to be honest, I instinctively disagree with you. I I, I don't like the idea of, uh, I don't want to say you're saying you should be forcefully repatriating people to where they <laughs> No, I'm not saying we, that. We live in an open, liberal country where the idea of, we have a freedom of movement within our country, and I, I really hope that never changes. Yeah. Change. Well, I mean, the, th the things that come to mind are things like HS2 starting being Built, being built from London upwards rather than from the north downwards and abandoning like rather spending 50 billion on that rather than spending half that much on transport links between the northern cities which would make vastly more difference and all the, the sort of the the shifting of priorities effectively yeah I agree That's a, I don't really know much about it. Just, it just instinctively I agree with you um, and back to the, kind of the power point about um, power at city levels we should let Greater Manchester and um, Liverpool City Region use their own tax base to raise the money or to borrow against their tax base to borrow it to fund to get the finance to fund, to um, to pay for these new infrastructure. We shouldn't have to rely on central government to say yes or no. So Crossrail, half of it was funded by the GLA. Um, it, it, the reason London has better infrastructure is because London has um, one of the reasons London has better infrastructure is because it has more powers to raise money to build that. And of course, they have a much wider, bigger tax base. But the powers thing is really important. So um, when they're trying to fund Crossrail One, um, they did a there was a levy on business rates, and it's been it was there for ten years or something, and it raised I think like a third of the money. Mm. And so, like, you can't do. I, I, actually, I think you can now do that in Great Manchester. But it, it, we haven't had, like most places have been constrained in doing that. But yeah, going back to the should people be able to like. I, I guess we should try and make places better and make people want to live and kind of stay in a place where they went to university or where they were brought up and feel like they can make a contribution there and have a job there. However, the economic reality of our country is such, and it's probably likely to worsen, is that London is the kind of the death star of the economy where it sucks everything in. And it may, it's, not, it's a nice idea to kind of reverse that, but I, I, 
I just think we have to work with what we have at the moment. And there is a there is really is a desperate housing shortage in London. Um, and my, our, my personal view is that we need to make London bigger, uh, not not bigger that way, but bigger, expand it. Um, we have these bizarre regulations that prevent us building on the edge of London. Um, we have the edge of London, or Greater London boundaries are set were set in 1963, I think, and we haven't looked at them since. There've been very tiny changes. But why? Okay, why are we having our plans dictated by? Like, why are we having? Why are we accepting that that is how it should be? Um, we also have this, we have a planning system which was introduced in 1947. It's kind of, it's very, um, it, it protects people's property rights, particularly people living in green, like, green leafy parts of the South East. Like, it's the biggest socialist thing left of our economy. Uh, and it protects the people that tend to vote conservative. It tends, to, it tends to protect their property value. And so they're the people who love this socialist planning system Whereas we, the kind of, you know, the millennial youth who are supposed to be socialists, um, like, uh, we, we never talk about, like, we, I, I don't know, we never talk about it in those terms. Like, the idea that, um, <laughs> oh God. Throw, her, throw her off if you want to. Right. Um, it's not going off my ass. <laughs> socialist planning policy. Yes, no, it's just, it's just this, this bizarre thing where, you know, when you talk about socialism for the old, capitalism for the young. Um, I'm not saying like one is better than the other or whatever, but like we don't talk about in these terms that these this socialist planning rule that was introduced in 1947 protects people's property rights, and no one seems to see this. But it we need to in a way. I mean, if it's a bit of a mistrust about this, but fight back against that kind of attitude. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad you brought this up because I I think I disagree with you on pretty much everything yeah. in that. Um, I mean, from a in terms of sort of the green belt and the expansion expansionism, one of the things that I'm always glad of every time I go to, to especially northern Europe is the fact that we do have green belt policies because in in places like the Netherlands and in large parts of Germany you get every town just bleeds into the next one and you get a, an expansion of of development along roads and arterial routes and then it sort of graduates a little bit less dense and then more dense and you're in the next town then less dense but you can barely tell that you've left one place and entered another you just need to look at a, a satellite image to tell this and and when you sort of when you always think when you fly into Gatwick and you see the sort of the especially at night and you see the sort of the absolute carpet of darkness pop, populated by a few dots of settlements rather than this mass expanse of light everywhere that's to me that's a perfect example of the the green belt and the planning system working well to stop sprawl which is a problem they've had in America and from from an architectural point of view and from a sort of urban planning point of view the way uh, I think I can't remember, Nick Boy Smith talks about this with create streets a lot. Densification is absolutely key, and that you're when you densify places, you create a better intensity of of, of life, of vibrancy in a in a city, and and within the sort of the one mile walkable zone, if you densify that, that's how you create a good functioning workable settlement, um, as they've been doing in places like Italy for centuries. Whereas if you allow the urban sprawl to happen effectively, that it will happen. And then you end up people having to drive everywhere and having to build tram links and having to have buses going all over the place and always trying to ship people in and out and in and out all the time. Whereas having a local base where you can, you're within a mile of where you work and you can walk there or cycle there, or you can, you can live within the, a local zone effectively, rather than having to commute for... 50 miles on the train or or even commute by car for five miles 
<laughs> but, but my point is that if you allow to even even as somebody with sort of who generally agrees with a lot of the more the, the more free market libertarian stuff if you allow that on a on a sort of planning level you end up with a, a free-for-all that ultimately results in negative outcomes for everybody which is exactly what happened in america where they're like no rules build what you want wherever you want for as far as you like and you end up with these miles and miles and miles and miles of urban sprawl that then result in traffic issues 50 years later so i wouldn't advocate that uh, i would advocate selective release of large sites on the green belt the crap green belt um to build very high quality beautiful um developments and you know we will release that land on the condition that it is built beautifully and waste the public life that is why it's a high amount of affordable housing and because the land, people, uh, developers with it, or whoever owns that land would have bought it with very little, uh, they wouldn't have thought it would be developed uh, because they would have had green belt regulation. So they would have paid quite a lot, they wouldn't have paid that much for the land, relatively speaking. Um, okay, if we're going to change the regulation on that land and let them develop on it, then you're not, you're, rather, rather than just saying you're going to make all of that um, with, you know, inverted in profit, we're going to say, no, you've got to build to a high quality and you're going to have that affordable housing discounted home ownership to millennials or something like that and it, it, uh, that's uh, we that's again we're going to start this conversation it's how we see the housing conversation changing in this country that actually not all land is sacred for, and it, not all of it should be protected from development and actually there are some conditions that if you meet those conditions you can develop that land uh, and you can achieve all of the things you're just talking about again if you just take selective parts of land you don't I'm not just saying, not, not just like a kind of, if you have one town there and one town there, and we just say, oh, we'll build along that bit. But rather, if you've got a link, kind of, you know, you can get from Euston to Watford in 18 minutes. That's quicker than I can get from Euston to Honor, on, um, sorry, what's it, um, some of the places on the northern one. So parts of London, or parts of the southeast are actually closer to, closer to London than parts of London are. That makes no sense. Yeah, I know what you mean. It's travel time, isn't it? Yeah. We should take advantage of all this new infrastructure, including HS2 and Crossrail 1 and Crossrail 2 if it ever gets built. And um, my thought is, and it's quite Victorian in a sense, um, that we should just be building and taking advantage of these areas and, again, setting very high conditions for what is built, but allowing it to be built. Let, let's relieve some of the pressure on the London housing market and let people live in these areas. And, it, I mean, when you fly into Gatwick or to Stamford, it would look different, but it wouldn't be places bleeding into each other. You would, you would set the highest standards of development to achieve the... Kind of the principles you just set out. Mm. No, I, I completely agree that in in certain circumstances there is definitely an argument for releasing greenbelt land. I mean, I used to live in Canterbury, and they're they're just about to start a brand new four thousand house development or something in the the fields just to the south of the city because they've made that strategic decision that that's a good idea. So, and in certain certain circumstances with the right quality, it is I think the right thing to do. My general argument against that, especially in London is that you have to pick off the low-hanging fruit first. And the the amount of brownfield land, of land over transport links, of reuse sites, of redevelopment sites, of densification, the amount of that that you can do before you have to even touch any greenbelt land is absolutely enormous. And if you do that first, you then help those areas that you are densifying by increasing the amount of footfall traffic, increasing the population, like increasing the amount of vibrancy. Um, before you even have to go near any extra urban sprawl in a lot of cases. So the problem with the brownfield land, I, I agree in principle, brownfield first. But so when you have 
um, institutions, organisations organised the campaign campaign to protect Birmingham England, saying we can build there's a million homes that can be on brownfield land outside. Most brownfield land or brownfield land by definition is land that is developed upon, and that is I mean the, like the land we're sitting on at the moment is brownfield land. It includes roads, it includes all sorts of things. And the, I'm not saying that most people think we can build on all brownfield land, but the idea that there's this kind of uh, a huge amount of land out there, especially in London, that is can be built upon is just it's it's not as true as people think it is and particularly in large there aren't many large brownfield sites left in London basically if we want to contain all of London's growth within those boundaries that I was talking about within the built up areas we're going to have to make some very difficult decisions on well with industry should what we prioritise uh, industry or homes uh, so there is a planning designation in the London plan called strategic industrial strategic industrial land or something like that Basically, it's land that's protected. You can't build homes in it, and it's um, a policy of the mayor at the moment to protect that land. But okay, if, and he also says we're going to protect the green belt in London. Okay, uh, where are we going to put? And then, uh, it, 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 then we get into quite difficult conversations about where we put new homes if we're ever going to achieve this target: sixty-six thousand new homes per year, which, by the way, the MHCLG, the Ministry of Housing, Community, and Local Government, think is far too low. And so the London School of Economics says we need to be around a hundred thousand new homes per year. So we're not identifying anywhere in, anywhere near enough land to come forward in London for new homes. Uh, and I agree we should look at brownfield sites first, but we should definitely not say that we're going to address in the way that the current system does. Mm. Well, I think it's not... I mean, obviously, there's sort of a stereotype as to what brownfield land actually is. And I think there's more so than sort of existing brownfield sites. There's even more of a role for densification of of in-use sites as, as opposed to sort of the idea of a brownfield site as like a derelict site that needs developing but had something once the idea of actually taking somewhere that has low density but functional housing um and it densifying it effectively or allowing it to be densified through planning policies is a much better one that if you're if you're a developer and you buy a i don't know a, a three-story georgian block say that you can actually put it, make it a five-story Georgian block or a five-story nicely designed contemporary block or whatever it is, that you, by that means, you then really gradually densify the city and you end up with somewhere like low, sort of mid-rise areas. Um, and that that's, that's the sort of the best way to, to increase numbers is by that densification around existing transport links and around existing infrastructure rather than uh, trying to create new nodes further out the, uh, and I'm not saying there's not a role for that there is sometimes but the the intensification of existing areas which are crying out for investment sort of kills two birds with one stone more so than sort of shipping out and I ignoring the areas as they are now and, and taking the the development and the prosperity and putting it elsewhere I guess it's a boring answer that we need to do both really I mean but the extent of the housing really go at this in many different ways and the problem with the, the draft new London plan so the London plan that the mayor's put together recently it closes off so many options and he set the highest housing target ever um, but then closed off many different ways of doing it so he wants um, so, so City County wants to build a lot more houses in suburban sites and small sites densifying as well and that's good uh, and we should be doing that but we should also be doing lots of different other things and um, I mean which policy exchange can be published in the session so we've got a report which is in the books um, making the case around this. So, um, yeah. 
So in terms of one of the things I talked about with Paul Finch was about the idea of housing as infrastructure and of thinking of housing and housing development as a sort of a, a national infrastructural yeah. project rather than as this sort of private sector thing that goes on separately. What's your sort of opinion of viewing it that way? And do you think there's a greater or lesser role for stronger compulsory purchase powers um, in in certain very specific circumstances um, to sort of enable that more easily? Um, so there's a um, planning, uh, basically, yeah, um, sorry. You could include housing as nationally significant infrastructure and that would make planning a lot easier and also mean government in the way that happens with just two just saying that is going there we don't care what you think about it and that is a very uh, i suppose an attractive way of doing things because it solves the nimbyism issue because we don't listen to nimbies anymore we don't care what they think suddenly uh and i mean it's quite a, i suppose quite a, it was like a chinese way of doing things i'll just put it there because that's for the good of the country and uh again yeah there's yeah, that's an attractive idea, and there is there is a policy framework for doing that, but it would just be very contentious to treat housing that way politically, and I, just, I don't think that would ever get through any house of any parliament, because mm. it just mean it, you know, it would give the, the government so much power to put houses where it wanted, um, and again, that is quite a nice idea, but I think in practice politically it's quite difficult. And compulsory purchase powers, um, yeah. That sounds like a good idea. It, like the state intervening more in the land market is a good idea because the land market is entirely dysfunctional um, in terms of delivering um, kind of land where it's needed at a price that would allow the building of beautiful, affordable new homes. Um, if the state can intervene in that in a more interventionist way, I think that is a good thing uh, in a targeted way. And it, the thing is, it already has the powers to do this. Um, it's always had the powers to do this. Local authorities can do it. Um, it's just it's really expensive and it's a really risky process because you are taking um, yeah you're taking a landowner you're, you're almost like expropriating what they think is the value of their land. I mean I think they're wrong, but it's a really politically ten contentious thing to do. And the, the politics on this has moved in the past year or two thanks to Shelter and other things like Civitas. Lots of other people being putting their weight behind this idea that we should be intervening much more in the land market. It's just it's a really difficult and contentious thing and what they the the, the, the null of it seems to be that they want to change um, things like the legal um, the law around what is a hope value and what is um, use value and what can, basically what can the landowner expect to get from their crop right from their land should it just be the, the existing use value so if it's just a farming field it should just be the value of the farming field and they get a small premium because they've been you know they've lost out on a few things and you know it's caused a bit of a nuisance to their lives or should they get the full hope value um of whether you know of what that the value of that land could be um, mm. and there seems to be i was speaking to a qc about this uh, about a few months ago and he seems he said he thinks there's some kind of confusion in this because um in how people interpret the law he thinks at the moment actually we're far closer to the idea that you can take when you compulsory purchase a plot of land from someone the amount that is paid for it tends to be closer towards the existing use value rather than the hope value. And the government has introduced uh, legislation recently to kind of facilitate that. But the, the, kind of the arguments of organisations like to talk about tend to be actually it's more towards hope value. So we're getting a very... Yeah, well, no, I think it's... I, I'm sort of inherently um, 
against or, or opposed the idea of compulsory purchase as someone who sort of believes in the, the freedom of individuals to exist without being without being corralled by the state into doing things but i think if you're going to do it you should give people say twice whatever the market value is to give to, so that they're actually sort of given reasonable compensation not only in terms of what it's worth in terms of the the fact that you've basically stolen their property yeah. and, <laughs> going back to what what creates the value or what dictates the value of a block of land it's normally what is the what is the planning policy dictates can be built there and so we go back to my field in the green belt which is crap and there's been farmers causing all kinds of damage to the field and under the kind of the earth underneath it um as a farm um on the green belt there's no hope of developing on that land you're not allowed to build and do that land therefore the value of that land is quite low it's like twenty thousand uh, pounds in a hectare something like that but if that green belt protection goes it skyrockets so it's um, mm. it becomes developable and it, the real value increases so but the state makes that decision um, but, but surely you have to you have to give people the value of what what it would the value it would get were it to be put on the market at the current time if nothing else changes because once you start saying hypothetically this might happen or hypothetically you might build a, a supermarket or a shopping center on this and it's going to be worth billions but if we move towards a system where the state says um actually you know that land is developable but on the condition that it is built to look like i don't know St. Paul's 50, i don't know to that kind of quality and you're going to build homes at that price uh, you're going to provide 30% affordable housing and there's going to be a yeah, 30% um, uh, private sale, 30% for rent and blah, blah. They then set the land value. But my point is that the land value is set by the planning policy largely. Uh, to, uh, it's a major factor of it. So if government, either, uh, either government kind of intervenes much more and says these are the exact things that you can build on that land and then the land value is set by that or they kind of get right out of the way and then they let the, kind of the free market rip, I suppose. But... That's actually what happens in the US. There's this model, um, the zoning model. They say you can build these kinds. Of, so for building social housing, um, you they say you can build social housing that has to be rented out at this price, uh, and then it sets the land value. It takes all, it takes a lot of this adversarial um, part of the planning system away, and uh, the, like, uh, the land value is nowhere near as high because the land value will only ever be what can be built on it. Mm. Well, again, I the. <laughs> no, it's bad. I can make it, I don't understand it entirely. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the zoning thing is, uh, I personally think, is a very, very sort of failed and, and bad idea because you're, I mean, you're, you're being the sort of the master of the destiny of the settlement, effectively, rather than letting it have the sort of organic growth in whatever way it wants to. So what once was a Georgian row of houses might now be a set of offices or might now be a school or might be a university or whatever it is. And I think we have a. There's, it's more responsible to just allow people to build whatever they need to build or want to build in a particular place. To allow shops to turn into houses and houses to turn into shops and shops turn into offices and all these kind of things, and not say you can only build this here or you can only build that there, because then you get that that like I say or organic spontaneity about suddenly there's a business hub over here suddenly there's a whole load of tech firms who've set up in these row of cottages down here in rural Gloucestershire or something or, you, or you've got these sort of dilapidated old shop fronts which no one's occupying have suddenly been turned into affordable housing um, so I'd, I'd be very very wary of any sort of proper zoning in that respect and this is where I guess you sort of 
you come up against local plans and to what degree local plans should be authoritarian effectively and say dictating what can and can't be done in particular places So, so this um, work you're doing from the housing perspective that's coming out soon. Tell us a little bit more about what that's going to be. Over the next year. Or... Yeah. What What have you got coming up? Um, 
um, have with Jake, um, how it extends to those kind of like, rom- romantic vision bumping up against utilitarian kind of Fabianism. Uh, so you have like you have your kind of William Morris on one side and your yeah um, uh, Sidney Webb on the other, and uh, yeah, what, how is that battle happening in the later part of the film? And so within that, the nineteenth politics change, then we've got uh, yeah all the other events as well. And final question: Given the building beautiful commission sort of stemmed from your work largely, what would you like to see come out of it in a few months' time when Roger Scruton comes back with his report? Uh, I think probably like November or December. I don't think it would be a f- yeah. Um, uh, again, and it, yes, Policy Exchange was one influence in this debate around ones like Create Streets, um, the Architects Journal with their campaign for more housing, better housing, more homes, better homes, more yeah. homes, better homes. Uh, lots of people have campaigned for this. We were just, I don't know, we, I suppose it's a question of timing. Uh, that's why our kind of uh, policy exchange seems to be all over that kind of thing. Um, what to come out of it? A set of practical recommendations to government and to industry about how how to turn the industry around, really, how to uh, make sure that the aesthetic and the design and style of new places is thought about a lot more. Um, and they need to be practical. And I think they will be. I think people will be surprised by the commission to be honest, because actually, to be honest, it doesn't need the commission doesn't need to be it doesn't need the um, the approval of uh, architects to be successful. It doesn't matter what whether I don't know I can't remember these names of these architects. Owen Hatherley called policy exchange fascistic, or if uh, I can't remember the names of the other ones who criticised mm. the commission. It doesn't matter what they think of it. I, it really doesn't. They are. Or one of them's a critic, and one of them's a, just a bumper mm. um, or whoever alludes to. Um, it doesn't need their approval. And uh, so, how how can it make architects relevant to volume house doing again, or in a much better, more in a better way? Yeah. Presumably, you'd agree that it would be much more helpful if architects and the architectural profession got involved in the conversation. Yeah, absolutely. The same way that Policy Exchange will feed into this commission, lots of other organisations should as well. So I'm sure the Reba are preparing something. And loads of places are. And loads of organisations are. It's good. Like, this is what we... Uh, this is what we were hoping to do in our report, just provoke a conversation around the quality of what is built in this country and how it can improve and how it can look like people want. And we don't have all the answers. God, no, we don't. But someone out there, someone someone out there, someone might. Uh, and if, if if the one thing we've done is provide that conversation, we've already succeeded. Well, on that point, I can agree with you, Jack Airy. Thank you very much. Thank you.